I don't want to blab about my own personal stories, but I just want to say that uh, without Richard Pryor, there would be no, there would be no Dave Chappelle. And, and all you comedians out there who complain that you can't say anything nowadays, I would, I would suggest that perhaps you have nothing to say because there's a very profound example of a person who said anything and everything he wanted to say outside of context. There was only three channels when that nigga was working. It's nothing to be afraid of if you saw a person be this courageous at such a high price. So please, ladies and gentlemen, make some noise for Richard Pryor. That was Dave Chappelle inducting Richard Pryor into the hall at the inaugural Netflix is a Joke Festival. It's an event to honor legends in the world of stand-up. And there's no denying that Richard Pryor fits that bill. That event is now streaming on Netflix, but we're here to uncover even more about those greats. I'm Cristela Alonzo, and I'm so excited to do this podcast series. We're doing a deep dive into the lives and careers of four comedy titans, George Carlin, Joan Rivers, Robin Williams, and in this episode, Richard Pryor. We have some amazing, funny people joining me to talk about the genius of Richard Pryor. You'll hear from people like Reggie Hudlin, Sherry Shepard, Tracy Morgan, Howie Mandel, Lorraine Newman, Richard Pryor's daughter, Rain, and more. Let's dive in. In 2017, Rolling Stone magazine compiled a list of the 50 greatest stand-up comedians of all time. Richard Pryor was number one. Maybe part of the reasoning is that you can hear his influence in pretty much all the stand-up comedy that came after him. It's almost difficult to express how big Pryor's impact was. Some of the people we interviewed took a swing at it by comparing him to legends who transformed other arts. Director Reggie Hudlin brought up Miles Davis. So Miles Davis changed the direction of music five times in the course of his career. And as he kept pushing himself to change as an artist, he changed music. Richard Pryor did that same thing. As he kept evolving Gray as an artist, he transformed the art of comedy multiple times. And continues to be the symbol of what it is. Comedian and actor Tracy Morgan compared him to an actor whose name was escaping him. Mm, who, who was that guy named that? Stella! Stella! Marlon Brando, Marlon Brando, Marlon Brando. He said Richard Pryor was the Marlon Brando of comedy. When Richard started, everybody had to change their shit. That's Richard, true. Everybody had to change their shit. There's no doubt Richard Pryor was right on par with Miles Davis and Marlon Brando. But I actually think you can go further. I think you can even compare Richard Pryor's influence to Jesus. And eh, before you get bent out of shape, I'm not saying Pryor was Jesus. He was much funnier. But, but you know the way, like when you go to a museum, all the artifacts and treasures on display are dated either B.C. or A.D.? They're essentially categorized by before Jesus and after Jesus. Well, I think it's fair to look at comedy in a similar way. Before prior and after prior. Let's look at what stand-up was like before he was around. It's stuff like the Borscht Belt comedians performing in the Catskills. Guys like Rodney Dangerfield, Don Rickles, Milton Berle, and, in this clip, Henny Youngman. I take my wife everywhere, but she finds a way home. <laughs> My wife would buy anything marked down. She brought home an escalator. <laughs> Take my wife, please. Before Richard Pryor, stand-up was not particularly autobiographical. There's a, a, so much fabulation going on. You know, when when Henny Youngman says, take my wife, please, it's not like, oh, my God, I got to know why he has such a bad relationship to his wife. 
No, it's a joke. Okay, it's just a joke. And then Richard Pryor comes in and the comedy becomes much more autobiographical and much more intimately autobiographical. That's Scott Saul. He wrote the biography Becoming Richard Pryor. He says Pryor was one of the first comedians to step away from telling quippy one-liners and start talking about real shit. So it's that part of your life that you maybe feel shamed about, you know, how you perform in bed. I was going to talk about something that's very serious, and I hope no one gets offended. I want to talk about fucking. And sometimes I talk about it, and a lot of people in the audience don't know what I mean. So would you raise your hand if you don't know what fucking is <laughs> so we can watch your ass when you leave here? You know, they're not easy things to, to talk about with anybody, your spouse, uh, much less the world, right? The, you know, the fights you have. And then within that, your, your psychic struggles, your feelings of, of self-loathing, your feelings that like life is not worth living. Comedian Howie Mandel agrees the landscape for comedy changed completely after Richard Pryor. He says Pryor could make the audience feel things by making it personal. I don't know that anybody before him ever did anything like that. They were writing jokes. They were putting together an act. Richard Pryor was an artist, and he was real, and he was authentic, and he could tug at your heartstrings as much as he could tug at you know, your funny. When you get them feeling somebody touches that shit inside you, that shit be fucking with you. When they make you man, and women, I don't give a fuck. You all can be so cool about turning a motherfucker off. You love when a motherfucker be in love with you because you can be some nasty bitches. <laughs> when a motherfucker, darling, please don't leave me. Just give me the... Oh, God, are you calling again? God, Richard, please, just don't do this to yourself. <laughs> I mean, why, why don't you go home and bathe or something like that? It's, just don't call here anymore. Just a minute, John. To make jokes about the hard shit in life, you have to have gone through it yourself first. And as Reggie Hudlin pointed out to me, Pryor definitely went through some shit. He's a guy who grew up in a whorehouse that his grandmother ran where his mother worked. Now, people say, oh, I'm from a dysfunctional background. There's nothing more dysfunctional than Richard Pryor's childhood. Absolutely. It's kind of funny when, when people say, uh, I grew up poor, and then you hear their version of poor, you're like, that's not poor. <laughs> but here's the thing. I'll take poor all day. Right? Yes, yes. Because poor doesn't mean you don't have a moral compass. It doesn't yes. mean you don't have a work ethic. It doesn't mean you don't come from a loving environment. You're just broke. You just can't do things. You don't have things. Broke is bad, but it's totally survivable. But extraordinary dysfunction, like, is almost always, you know, spiritually, psychologically fatal. Some people might judge the Priors for operating brothels. But as Priors biographer Scott Saul pointed out, this was happening in Peoria, Illinois, in the 1940s. And at that time, he says, the Black community there was basically limited to two jobs, janitors and maids. So basically, if you're Black in Peoria, you're cleaning up other people's messes. That's what you're asked to do again and again and again. And, and there's no black lawyers. I don't think there's a single black doctor, maybe one. So it's like, if you want to make a way out of no way, the underground economy is where you're going to go. Even if Richard Pryor's environment was far from wholesome, Saul says his family wasn't poor. The Pryors were actually fairly successful. They had not just one brothel, they had, they had a set of brothels eventually. And they also had a bar called The Famous Door with live entertainment. And the whole family had a role in making these businesses successful. You know, his mother was the kind of the madam in chief. And, you know, his father was the enforcer. You know, he's a former boxer. And his Aunt Maxine, who was a really good people person, she was, you know, bringing in the girls. So this was not just incidental to his life. It was at the center. So there's no doubt Richard Pryor grew up in a rough environment. But as his daughter, Rain Pryor, broke down for us, he 
He was also surrounded by a larger-than-life cast of characters. The whole family was funny. Uncle Dickie was funny. He was like a 300-pound man that died of a heart attack having sex. You can't get funnier than that, you know? You had Aunt Dee who had a crazy finger because she did something when she was a kid and we were all afraid of her and she would call names about our moms and we would fight with her all the time. And, you know, and, and um, you know, then you have this mama. So everyone in the family added to his stand-up. Everyone in the family was a part of his life. The mama Rain just mentioned was Pryor's grandma, Marie. She ran the entire business. I think Tyler Perry's Medea is the closest I've ever seen to someone who would be like Grandma Marie. She was a larger-than-life woman in personality, had a very deep faith that she used constantly, but would carry a knife or a gun under her dress. And she loved Daddy. Like, she was very protective of him. No matter how protective his grandma might have been, it's safe to say that growing up in that kind of environment... Richard Pryor saw some pretty crazy stuff. I mean, one of Pryor's most intense memories as a child is waking up and hearing screams and having no idea where those screams were coming from or why that person was screaming. You know, is this this uh, a scream of passion? Is this a scream of, of violence, coming out of violence? And I, I think that's such a powerful memory. Obviously, that's not every minute in the brothel. But I think it's like, it, it stands for the way that things could just be turned upside down and you never knew what was going to happen. It wasn't just sex and violence. Pryor saw all kinds of things that polite society often hides. You know, a priest comes into the brothel and he <laughs> removes his, his collar or a city leader comes in to use the services of the ladies upstairs. And yet these you know, the priest will put back on the collar as he's leaving, you know. Being exposed to that kind of hypocrisy must have had an impact on a young Richard Pryor. His home life was stressful, to say the least, and school didn't offer much relief. As Saul explained, Peoria was segregated. Pryor started out at a mostly black school as a child, but as a teenager, he transferred to a mostly white school, which was challenging in many ways. When he's playing in the playground, he's ostracized a lot, and he's called the N-word. Sometimes he's even beaten up. He doesn't do that well in school. And the way that he finds a place for himself is by being the class clown. Saul told us the Pryor's teacher, Mrs. Yinks, made a deal with him. If he came to school, she'd give him a few minutes to perform for the class on Fridays and do his Jerry Lewis impressions. It's goofy shit, physical humor, like double takes or pratfalls. Those same kids who beat him up and called him the N-word are suddenly laughing hilariously. Oh, my God, they think he's wonderful. And so those are the terms that he finds acceptance within the white world of Peoria. But Mrs. Yink's classroom was only part of Pryor's journey to becoming a performer. That dream really took root at a largely Black after-school program at a nearby community center. There is where Pryor hooks up with an incredible mentor, Julia Whitaker. She was herself the bohemian of the center. You know, she wore dashikis much earlier than anybody else did. She would pipe Miles Davis from her office, and she wore her head in a, in a natural when other people got it straightened. These other teachers would look at Richard Pryor, and one person said it was like he was kind of the mosquito they were swatting away. They were like, that kid's too unruly. And she was like, Richard Pryor, this person's an amazing storyteller. Juliet Whitaker saw Pryor's potential and nurtured it. She helped him craft comedy routines. She cast him as the MC for the center's talent shows. And she even gave him his first part in a play. It was a production of Rumpelstiltskin. So she was the person who really said, you know, you can, you can make it. You've got something really special. And that might mean leaving Peoria. The next decade of Pryor's life was anything but smooth. He got kicked out of school at the age of 14. He spent some time in the army, but he clashed with some of the other soldiers, mostly racist GIs from the South. And after he tried to stab one of them, he was discharged early under honorable conditions. He filled out an exit questionnaire when he left the military, and under profession he wrote, actor. He had done some performing around Peoria, but he wanted something bigger. So at 23 years old, with only a few bucks in his pocket, 
he set off for New York City, hoping to make it. Years later, he and George Carlin were guests on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and they talked about those early days starting out in the village. Hanging out, writing down our stuff. Yeah, we started 1965 down there, yeah. down at Cafe Agogo. And we used to idolize Bill Cosby. Yeah. yeah. We used to go see him. He was hot. That yeah. was something to go see Bill. For context, they taped this interview in 1981, way before the allegations against Cosby came out. Yeah. Did you ever, you know, did you ever even unconsciously pick up on somebody's line and use it? Oh, on purpose. Oh, I mean, actually. <laughs> That's yes. more honest than I thought I was going to get. Oh, yes. just, just, just I, I, out I, I, stealing. Huh? The Dick Gregory used to have stuff in the Jet magazine, you know? Uh, and I, that's how I started uh, reading his material, and I'd do it on stage. And that was my uh, first breakthrough as that I got a lot of laughs with his material. Yeah. <laughs> and, then I, and then I moved on to Bill Cosby, and I just got a hit with Bill. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I know. I was good. <laughs> and people say, you sound like Bill. I was, the hell you mean? Dick Gregory and Bill Cosby were two of the few black stand-up comedians who found mainstream success back in the 1960s. So it's not surprising the prior looked up to them. You can hear their influence in the jokes prior was writing at the time. In this clip from 1964, prior sounds a lot like Cosby. Instead of the deep personal stories he tell later in his career, it's more breezy, observational jokes about mundane parts of life. I like New York. I live here. I'm a bachelor. I got my apartment. I find bachelors have a lot of hang-ups, like preparing your own food. You ever fix coffee? You get the coffee can down off the cabinet, right? Take the key off the top of the can. You put on that little doohickey. You know what you bleed from, right? <laughs> Turn it halfway around the can. It breaks off, right? You got to get a spoon. You dig in there with a spoon, raise up just enough, stick your hand in there, cut your fingers, right? <laughs> Even with this tame, lighthearted material, Pryor started getting some recognition. By the mid-1960s, he was getting invited to appear on TV. John Moffat was a production assistant on The Ed Sullivan Show back then, and he still remembers one of the first bits Pryor did on the show, impersonating two kids getting into a fight at school. He was a young comic, and he did young comic kind of stuff. He did a thing about his when he was in school, and there was a bully, and he waited for him, so when Richard left, the bully would be waiting there and hit this visual thing, which I can't do. Yeah, but anyway, he basically took his fingers and poked it at his eyes and then Richard's eyes, and then he did fists, like something he was going to do to him. And his routine was basically things like that. Even though he was starting to get on TV, Pryor was still performing at small clubs in New York. He was working out new material and getting better and better. Comedian Lorraine Newman was a teenager back then. Her older sister was a folk singer in New York at the time who performed at the same clubs as Pryor. And Newman still remembers going to watch her sister and being really excited to recognize a comedian she knew from TV. When I was 14, she invited us, her family, to the Troubadour to come see her friend Richard Pryor. And I was excited because he was already very well-known and... Uh, this was, I think, at the point when he was still doing the material about his grandmother spanking him with a paddle that had holes in it so the meat could come through. And then, of course, meeting him after the show and just being so excited. Heading into the late 1960s, Pryor was breaking through. He was making lots of appearances on TV. He was playing larger venues. His career was really starting to take off. At the same time, the country was changing. The counterculture movement was everywhere he turned, and Pryor didn't shy away from it. Here's my dad doing his comedy, hanging out with the Black Panthers, meeting people like Harry Belafonte, an activist, and knowing that he had more to say, knowing that his voice could be used for something. That's, of course, Richard's daughter, Rain Pryor. She hadn't been born yet, but she says knowing her dad it was only a matter of time before his thoughts and beliefs came out in his comedy. The way I know my dad is he never lied, and he was a truth teller whether you liked it or not, and you probably got more than you bargained for when you had a conversation because he didn't hold things back. He didn't have that filter. There was no PC for him. <laughs> like, he was just straight out, let me tell you my story, let me tell you about you, or whatever it is. And one night in 1967... Everything changed. 
Richard Pryor was garnering some success and then kind of threw it away one night in Las Vegas and just said, you know, I can't pretend anymore. Pryor was 27 years old and set to perform for an all-white audience at the Aladdin Hotel when, as the story goes, he looked out and said, what the fuck am I doing here? And he walked off stage. A lot of people thought Pryor's career was finished that night. Many in the media called it a meltdown. But Rain Pryor doesn't see it that way. It's funny that, you know, many people call it a meltdown and I call it a coming out. It was like, you know, an emergence. For him, it was really a taking off the mask, taking off the idea of what other people, white America, entertainment industry thought he should be. And he said, no, this is, this is who I am. It was a big epiphany and it changed his life after that. I mean, he made the right choice. From that moment on, Pryor's act would never be the same. He threw out the mundane jokes and looked inward for deeper, more honest material. And as Tracy Morgan told me, sometimes that's what you got to do. Sometimes you got to put your set to the side and just go inside and see what you got in there. See what you got in there. That means you got to let go and say, fuck it. I ain't doing no set. I'm going to see what I got. That's what I do all the time when I'm looking for material. I got that from Richard. A lot of this raw, honest material showed up on his comedy albums. And what younger people listening to this should understand is that back then, comedy albums were huge. Today, you can find unfiltered stand-up all over the internet. But as Reggie Hudlin explains, back then, it was a lot harder to hear a comedian really speak their mind. You may not see them live, and there was no place for them to be uncensored on television. So the albums were really the document of, you know, their full mindset. And some of Pryor's first albums were explosive. The first Richard Pryor album I heard was Craps After Hours, right? Which is... A spectacular album. A spectacular album. I hate it for him to call my father up, though, right? Because, you know, Mr. Pryor, we have your son down here at headquarters. What about it? Fuck him. <laughs> I hate it for my father to come get me out of jail, right? Because I know he's going to beat my ass, right? You know, I'd be praying something happened to him on the way down there. The whole thing of, like, cops bust into the club. Anybody seen Jesse? We're looking for Jesse. You seen Jesse? No, nigga, I don't want no radio. Uh, Raymond, you seen Jesse? Not me, no lot. Swear to God, I ain't seen nobody since 1942. There's so many genius, genius jokes on that album. And then you get to the breakout album, right? This is his version of Off the Wall. This is his version of Princess 1999 when he drops uh, That Nigga's Crazy, right? First of all, it's called That Nigga's Crazy, right? So, and again, it's hard for young people to remember how that word was literally, it was a nuclear bomb. You could not say that. And he put it on the cover of the album. It was insane. Offer you wonder why a nigga don't go completely mad. <laughs> no, you do. You get your shit together. You work all week, right? And then you get dressed. You make it. Maybe say can't make $125. We get $80 if he lucky. <laughs> right? And he go out, get clean, be driving with his old lady, going out to a club, and police pull over. Get out of the car! That was a robbery! A nigga looks just like you! <laughs> all right, put your hands up, take your pants down, spread your cheeks. Now, what nigga feel like having fun after that? <laughs> the album was all hits. I mean, that was a no-skips album. It was like, boom, boom, boom. Each, each, each joke was annihilating. And it was as big as any pop album. It, it just, so it was like, vroom. Those albums were a big deal. And a lot of people have talked to Richard's daughter, Rain Pryor, about how they used to listen to them. We call it basement listening. You know, the basement listening is, you know, you, you go down and you get to play the singers, the comedians, the whatever that you're not allowed to do in the house when the family's together watching, you know, the black and white television. 
I mean, it was pretty, pretty remarkable to be able to sit in a basement, you know, and hear the stories of people who snuck in the basement so they could listen to my dad so away from the children, you know, and then hear the children that snuck in the basement to listen to dad away from their parents, you know. <laughs> Between 1968 and 1983, Richard Pryor hit it big. He released more than 20 albums in only 15 years, and he also broke into the movie business. I still think the best movie he made was Blazing Saddles, and he's not in it. Ty Burr is a film critic who used to write for the Boston Globe. He now has a substack called Ty Burr's Watchlist. He talked with us about Pryor's film career, including his role as a writer on the 70s Western parody, Blazing Saddles. He fought to keep the language of it, and he was supposed to be in it. I don't know uh, how many people know that Mel Brooks wanted, intended, prior to play Black Bart, but uh, the studio was scared of his drug problems and didn't think he could get insured, and so they told Brooks that he couldn't cast him. After Blazing Saddles, Pryor had some on-screen roles, like in Lady Sings the Blues or Silver Streak. In both these cases, these were cameo roles. Piano Man doesn't have a name, because they were just like, this is an incidental character, but Pryor will bring a little life to the role. Again, that's Richard Pryor's biographer, Scott Saul. What they discovered is that Pryor refused to stay in the cameo role. A cameo role is kind of a caricature. And black people had often been caricatures in Hollywood. Saul says Pryor used his improv skills to make small roles come alive. The end result were characters who were much more nuanced than what the script had originally called for, and who the audience came to care much more about. And before you know it, this character of Piano Man, they're writing more dialogue, more scenes. And this person was never named in the original script. It's like, by the end... Spoiler alert. His death, because of a drug deal gone bad, is like the emotional climax of the film. Pryor would go on to do some good films like Blue Collar. But most of his movies weren't exactly classics, even if he himself was funny. Reggie Hudlin had an insightful take. It was a time for, it was very hard for black entertainers to find vehicles worthy of their talent. And especially someone as revolutionary as him. You don't have other artists who are on that journey with him. You don't have experienced writers who totally are in sync with Richard, what's Richard doing. You don't have directors, producers, executives at studios who say, I, look, we need to catch that lightning in a bottle. One place that did catch that lightning in a bottle was a new sketch comedy show called Saturday Night Live. The show's first season was in 1975, and one of the original cast members was a comedian who had once seen Pryor perform alongside her folk singer sister in New York. When he hosted the show, I, I don't ever remember being aware of when we knew he was going to host. I just remember him being there. And, you know, me going up to him and saying, I don't know if you remember me, I'm Tracy Newman's little sister. And his face lit up. Newman and Pryor were in a memorable sketch that week. It was a parody of the classic horror movie, The Exorcist. She played a possessed little girl. And Pryor was a priest who was scared shitless, but wouldn't let the devil talk smack about his mama. Your mama eats kitty litter. Don't nobody talk about my mama. <laughs> But the Exorcist spoof wasn't the only bit that made the Richard Pryor episode a standout from that first season. I can only speak for myself in this context. I don't know that anybody was really... Uh, focused on the idea of race. I think people were more focused on the idea that this is Richard Pryor. And Richard Pryor goes places that nobody else goes. One of the most famous sketches from that episode was called Word Associations. Richard Pryor plays a guy interviewing for a janitor job. And Chevy Chase plays his white would-be boss. We got one more uh, kind of psychological test we always do here. It's just a word association. I'll... Uh, Throw you out a few words. It starts off pretty tame. Fast, slow, rain, snow. But it doesn't White. take long to escalate. Negro. Whitey. Tar baby. 
What'd you say? Tar baby. Oh, Faye. Colored. Redneck. Jungle bunny. Pack of wood. Burhead. Cracker. Spear chucker. White trash. Jungle bunny. Hunker. Spade. Hunker, hunker. Nigger. Dead hunker. I mean, that the sketch with Chevy Chase was just like, you can't do that today. Again, that's Richard's daughter, Rain Pryor. You can't have a sketch where you're, you know, you have that back and forth and it's racially charged and it's politically charged. But it was so right. It was so right. Rain also had some insight into what was going on behind the scenes. And what's funny is they did not get along. They don't like each other. So that, I think, is outstanding. That episode of Saturday Night Live is utterly different than any other episode of Saturday Night Live in that first season, and arguably ever. Scott Saul, Richard Pryor's biographer. And the reason for that is that Richard Pryor had very stiff terms in his negotiation with Lorne Michaels. He wanted to desegregate the show. But Saturday Night Live was a very white show. It had one black actor who was very marginalized, not let to be part of the writer's room. So Richard Pryor said, if I'm going to be on Saturday Night Live, these are my conditions. Number one, of course, I'm a writer, but also my friend Paul Mooney's a writer. And we're in the writer's room. And number two, you know, I've got to have hired these other black actors and they're going to be part of the sketch too. And number three, I want a lot of tickets for the audience because I don't want it to be the usual audience for Saturday Night Live. I want it to be black folks as well. And then we're going to create something that nobody's ever seen before. And as Saul says, they pulled it off. But they never did that again. Somehow they never again were like, oh, that works so well. Let's have more black writers. Let's have more black people in the audience. I think they, people should learn from lessons from Richard Pryor. Even if SNL never thought to do something like that episode again that season, other people in show business did. When the episode aired, Rocco Urbisi was a TV producer who was just starting out. What happened was I was out of work, frustrated, and SNL went on. And I said that I have to do something, something like this. There must be something I can do. So I had this idea to ask Pryor if he would do a TV special. That wasn't entirely a pipe dream. Urbisi often saw Pryor perform live back then at clubs like the Improv. But Pryor was still a big deal. So he had to work up the courage to approach him. So I waited one night after close, about 1.30 in the morning, and I followed him in the parking lot, and he turned to me and says, <laughs> well, what do you want? I said, well, if I could sell the TV special, would you do it? He said, go sell it, and left. So Urbisi started calling up people he knew in the industry, trying to sell the idea of a Richard Pryor TV special, and he was getting interest. But before he had inked any deals, he stumbled onto an unpleasant surprise. The next thing I know, there's an announcement in Variety that NBC has made a deal with Richard Pryor to do a special, and I'm not even mentioned. Urbisi had been cut out of the deal. He felt he'd been screwed over, and that feeling festered as he went on to his next job. I'm walking on the lot one night, and here comes a limousine. The window rolls down, and it's Richard. And he said, why aren't you doing the special? So I, I went off. I thought it was fucked. How could this happen? Pryor heard him out and decided to do something about it. Next thing I know, I'm in a meeting at Bert Sugarman's house in Bel Air. There's Richard and Pam Greer, three guys from MTV. I had no idea. Richard said, Rock, what is your, what did you tell me the vision of your show was, the, the special you saw? I said, it would be a, it would be an honest portrayal of where you are and, and pulling up a mirror to the black culture and how you knew it and just being edgy and and kind of make all the specials have a storyline of some kind. And he said, thank you, Rocco. Um, Pam and I are going to dinner. Why don't you join us and walk out of the meeting? After that, Rocco was Richard's guy, a co-producer on the special. To round out the crew, NBC brought on John Moffat to direct it. When we were casting the Richard Pryor show, 
and I was putting together the cast, I was talking about who to get, and he said, I want my friends from the comedy store. I said, well, but, but can they act? And he said, I want my friends from the comedy store. Okay. It turned out Pryor's friends from the comedy store made for a pretty stacked lineup. They were all starting out then, but they went on to do big things. People like Marsha Warfield, Tim Reed, and a young comedian by the name of Robin Williams. And true to Urbisi's vision, the special was grab you by the throat edgy. It started with a sketch on a slave ship. John Belushi is playing an enforcer. And he's below deck cracking his whip on all the rowing slaves. He's there to carry out a request from the captain. It's time for another one. Another one, huh? All right. Belushi singles out Richard Pryor's character and yanks him off one of the oars. Are you taking me? You're going to NBC. You're going to do your own special. The special was a hit. And after it aired, NBC greenlit a whole series. The Richard Pryor Show. The first season would be 10 episodes. But as John Moffat explained, Pryor wasn't sure he wanted to go through with it. The show was slotted for prime time. And Pryor was concerned the network would want to censor his material. He said, you know... What, te- what television does, it just chews you up and spits you out, and that's it. It's, I don't want that to happen to me, so I don't want to do that. But Pryor had a contract, so even if he didn't want to do it, he was still on the hook for 10 episodes. But, as Moffat told us, that didn't stop Pryor from trying to change his mind one night at a dramatic party at his place, north of Los Angeles. Richard starts out announcing that he's not going to do the show. He said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to become that. So that's it. Now let's relax and party. So he has his housekeeper go upstairs to his bedroom and bring down this white sock. And he brings down the white sock, turns it upside down, and this white stuff comes out on the table. And he says, everybody join me. While Pryor was busy celebrating his decision not to do the show, NBC wasn't about to just let him out of his contract. In the end, they reached a compromise. Pryor would do only four episodes. He wasn't happy about it, and the series got off to a rocky start. Pryor wanted to open with a bit about how the network had cut his balls off, which didn't fly with NBC, and they killed it. So instead, the first episode of the series opened with a sketch about Star Wars. Pryor wanted to do a spoof of the famous cantina scene, which was helped by the fact that he had a friend in high places. George Lucas loved Richard. So in, they had the masks from the original masks from Star Wars, and they let us use it. The basic idea of the sketch is that Pryor is playing the bartender, serving all of these alien patrons. Hold it. Hold it. Yeah, Starbucks. It must be for you, said the Douglas. <laughs> yeah, your wife wants you to come home. The rest of the sketch was pretty simple. Pryor basically goes around the bar interacting with all the guests. It's a kind of thing that normally would have been a cinch for Pryor, but Moffat says it wasn't so easy to shoot. And Richard, this is, this is one of his bad days. So Richard was not all there. He says Richard did his first take and then beeline to the dressing room. But there was a problem with the footage. We had maybe half enough, but not enough. So they had to go to Pryor's dressing room and see if they could get him to do another take. And we say, Richard, and he's like passed out, it seemed, pretty bad, pretty far gone. And we say, Richard, we don't have enough. You have to do it again. He said, what? He says, I I can't do it again. He said, you have to do it again. We don't have enough. The audience is still there. We got to do it. And he goes to his posse and says, they want me to do this again. Do you think I have to do this again? And they say, oh, no, Richard. Richard, that was fine. You nailed it. You got it. And we said, no, Richard, you didn't. Somehow or other, he trusted us enough, trusted us enough to listen to us. One more take was all they needed. And the final sketch is definitely funny. But not every segment of the Richard Pryor show was that lighthearted. 
Some of it was flat-out serious. In a different sketch, Pryor's character is a drunk guy named Willie who goes home to his wife, played by Maya Angelou. And after he passes out on the couch, she delivers a monologue that's clearly not meant for laughs. And then I remember at the courthouse, when we went to get married, you got very uptight. I was so happy, I didn't really want to notice it. But later you said, when the judge called you by your first name, he may as well have called you boy. I, th I thought you were being too sensitive. And then you lost your first job. And then you lost your second job. And then I watched you time and again go up to that welcome table and come back with dry bones. And you knew I was watching you too, Willie. And then you called yourself a nigger. And I said, oh, honey, don't call yourself that. And you said, no, no, it's an affectionate term. I can use it, but nobody else can use it. And then you called me a nigger, Willie. And then if there was ever any affection in it, it disappeared. Because you started using it to curse me, to curse yourself, to curse the whole race, to curse life. The Richard Pryor show was revolutionary, but it was rough going. Pryor's life at this point was messy. He'd been through a few marriages, had a bunch of kids, and was in the throes of a pretty heavy drug habit. But in 1979, he had a life-altering experience. It happened during a trip he took to Kenya, and he would later talk about it in his routines. One thing that happened to me that was magic was I was leaving. I was sitting in the hotel lobby, right? And a voice said, what do you see? Look around. And I looked around, and I saw people all colors and shapes. And the voice said, do you see any niggas? I said, no. I said, you know why? Because there aren't any. Because I'd been there three weeks. I hadn't said it. And it started making me cry, man. I said, holy shit. All the acts I've been doing and as an artist, a comedian, and speaking and trying to say something, and I've been saying that, and that's a devastating fucking word. That has nothing to do with us. Like we are from a place where they first started people in Africa, right? I mean, in Kenya, I mean, Dr. Leakey, a white anthropologist. I have to say that so the white people believe him. Oh, that could be true, white. Yes, but... I mean, he found remains of man five million years ago. The black man was the first motherfucker to stand on the earth and say, where in the fuck am I? <laughs> and how do you get to Detroit? The trip to Kenya changed Pryor's views on blackness. After he got back, he stopped using the N-word in his routines. But not long after that, he suffered a devastating loss. It was a very big blow to him when Mama Marie died. It crushed him because she was his truth in the family. With his grandmother gone, Pryor started to spiral. Addiction, he struggled with it because there's a sense of power he got from it, a sense of control that wasn't controlled. A lot has been said about Pryor's drug use at this moment in his life. But Rain says that's not the full picture. My dad struggled heavily you know, when hindsight 2020, before it was ever talked about, you know, struggled with mental health and struggled with depression because um, nobody tries to kill themselves and set themselves on fire if you're not depressed. The story that he tells that I think is true is that he was watching, you know, a documentary on the Vietnam War and he saw this image of the Buddhist monks setting themselves on fire. And they were doing it to protest religious unfreedom in South Vietnam. But he sees it and he's taken by this image of what it means to have the courage to set yourself on fire. And he decides that he's going to do it himself. And so he douses himself over proof rum and then lights himself on fire. 
one thing to note is that, like, as soon as he did it, he felt very differently from the monks. He was like, I don't want to die this way. And um, he started running for his life. Pryor suffered severe burns to 50% of his body. And like almost every traumatic thing that ever happened to him, he later incorporated this event into his stand-up. Here he is at one of his most famous performances, 1983, live on the Sunset Strip. And you know something I noticed? When you run down the street on fire, people will move out of your way. Right, they don't fuck around. They get the fuck out your way. Except for one old drunk, right? He was like, hey, buddy, can we go? I... Come on, pal, just slow up, okay? Just a little off the sleeve, what is it? And I got to the hospital. You can really tell when you fucked up when the doctor goes, ah! Holy shit. Even after one of the most horrific experiences of his life, Pryor was utterly himself, blunt, devastating, and hilarious. Being able to joke about it was astonishing to his audiences and inspiring to the stand-up comedians I talked to, like Howie Mandel and Tracy Morgan. Because you shouldn't do it, because you shouldn't say it, is why he said it. As somebody who has battled, you know, mental health my entire life and my entire existence and never talked about it, it was so refreshing to see somebody talk about things that, at the time, you'd probably be thrown out of a building for. And I would hear the gasps, and I would hear the oohs, and I'd hear him go too far. And then the next night, you know, make a little, he'd find, he'd have to go over that line to find that line. That's the other thing that he made me realize, too, that, you know, there is nothing that is not funny. There is humor in everything. And especially, especially in tragedy. You have to study life. Richard Price studied life. That's Absolutely. why he can talk about it. He studied it. Sometimes you wouldn't see another special from Richard for five years because he's going through ups and downs. You got to have shit to talk about. You can't keep doing the same yes. material. I got yeah, to get hit by truck. I got to get I, There's trucks out there that, that got to hit me. I got to get yeah. hit by truck. I got to <laughs> get a divorce. I got to go through shit. I love, I love, I gotta get hit by a truck. I got to. I'm out there looking for Amazon now. I'm going big. I'm going big with it. I ain't fucking around. Sadly, the burning incident wouldn't be the last thing Pryor suffered before he died. In 1986, he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, often called MS. It's a degenerative disease. And over the next two decades, it slowly robbed him of his ability to move and speak. But he still didn't stop performing. One of the joys that I will never forget is when Richard Pryor, at the end, where he was in a wheelchair and he could barely lift his head, he came back to do stand-up at the comedy store where I was a regular. And he requested that I open for him. Sherry Shepard is a comedian. She also used to co-host The View. And that's akin to now comics going up for Dave Chappelle. If you go up in front of Bill Burr, you know, a personal request. And literally, Mitzi calls me, Mitzi Shore, and she said, Richard asked for you to open for him. Can you come down tonight? Can I come down tonight, Richard Pryor? And um, he had seen me a couple times and I made him laugh. So to get on stage and do what I do, and then I get to say, put your hands together for a legend, an icon, ah, Richard Pryor, and him touched my hand. And I got to, and they told me, don't be hugging him. But I, shoot, I didn't know if I was going to be able to get this again. And I've been down and I hugged him to feel his face on mine. I'll never forget it. Richard Pryor died on December 10th, 2005. He was 65 years old. 
We started this episode talking about Pryor's incredible influence on stand-up comedy. People tried to put it into words. We heard him compared to Miles Davis, Marlon Brando, and, yeah, I even said Jesus. But there's one more comparison we should add from Tracy Morgan. I'm going to just ask you this, just for the people that might not be familiar, the new generation, everything. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you want to say? Like, how would you sum up Richard Pryor's legacy? One word. King. Mm. Mm. King. We're all just as princes and princesses. Oh, that's truth right there. The man set himself on fire for us. Make me want to cry, man. He the king. I love that. He the king. He our king. Thanks so much for listening to The Hall. If you liked our show, you can give us a follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Our next episode drops next week. The Hall Live show is now streaming on Netflix. I'm Cristela Alonzo. The Hall is a production of Netflix Podcasts and Netflix is a Joke Radio. The show is produced by Radio Point, hosted by me, Cristela Alonzo. Executive producers are Gideon Evans, Alex Bach, Daniel Powell, Houston Snyder, and Sabrina Fonfetter. Directed by Gideon Evans. Written by Gideon Evans and David Fox. Produced by Taylor Kowalski and David Fox. Edited by David Fox. Scoring by Roddy Nickpour. Recorded by Kate Moldenhauer. Mixed by Kat Iosa. Talent booking and consulting by Cultivated Entertainment. Special thanks to Reggie Hudlin, Howie Mandel, Rain Pryor, Tracy Morgan, Sherry Shepard, Scott Salt, Rocco Ubisi, Lorraine Newman, John Moffat, and Ty Burke. Sound services provided by Great City Post. Thank you.